Well, I wonder um, what it is that you would like to have written about you on your tombstone. You know, it used to be in, in, uh, in the old days that much, uh, many more tombstones actually contained information about the person who was deceased, about their lives, than really is the habit now. Typically now it's much more uh, muted information, kind of date of birth, date of death, and, and, and typically that's it. Uh, but back in the day, they used to write sometimes paragraphs about uh, the person who had passed. I wonder if something will be written on your tombstone, what would you like for it to be? Recently, I've been involved in a couple of funeral services where uh, some great accolades have been shared about the, the guys uh, who passed. One I, I really specifically remember happened just a few weeks ago where so many people stood up and said of this person who had died, he was the best friend you could ever have. And it was like one after another, after another, after another said, he was my best friend. And they all felt like he was their best friend and they were his best friend. That's a great thing to be said, that we were a good friend. I was part of a funeral service just a couple of weeks ago where uh, it was stated by another person that uh, this guy would light up a room with that big smile. Anytime he would walk into a room, he would light it up. That's, that's a good thing to be said. I'm going to participate in a funeral service this afternoon at 2.30, and I'm, a, I'm absolutely certain because this was a life well lived, and I'm certain that there will be some things that will be wonderful that will be said. But what would be the best thing? What would be the, the greatest memorial, perhaps, that could be spoken about us? Well, one thing that I think all of us would like to have written on our headstone would be to share the headstone of King Hezekiah. Listen to what the Bible says about King Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18.5. It simply says this, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. That would be enough, wouldn't it? In fact, I'd kind of like for that to be on my headstone. My wife's in this room somewhere, sweetheart, make a note. That, I want that on my headstone. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. What a great thing to be said. And it's not only a great thing that could be put on our tombstone, it really is something that if we do it, if we learn to trust in the Lord God of Israel, then we will have blessings that come along with that Hezekiah-like confidence. They, the, these blessings that come to us because we have learned to trust in the Lord God of Israel. For example, when we trust in the Lord, we learn to walk in trust we then receive God's protection. Listen to what Psalm 18 and verse 2 says. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. He's my God, my rock in whom I will trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. The psalmist understood that trusting in the Lord positions us behind him in that he is our shield and our protector, our fortress, and our defender. When we trust in the Lord, we experience his provision to us, among other things. That God has promised that he will provide for us all that we need. Psalm 37 and verse 3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good, and so shall you dwell in the land, and surely you shall be fed. It's a simple psalm. 
that promises that when we trust in the Lord, then the Lord provides for us. He takes care of us. I want, to, I want it to be remembered of me that I trusted in the Lord God of Israel and I surely in this life want to experience God's protection and I want to enjoy God's provision. So we, we need to learn this grace of trusting in the Lord. In fact, I wonder who you know. You know, we all need models of this. And I, I bet you've seen some good models. I bet you know of some people who maybe they're living now and there's someone in your family or your life group or someone in your church and you say, you know, that person trusts wholly in the Lord. They just have such complete confidence, unwavering trust in God. Maybe that's someone in your life who's passed on now and, and, uh, and they're, they're not living anymore. They've gone on to heaven. But let me challenge you in something. Here's a bit of homework, okay? If the person that's been a good model of trust for you is still alive, why don't you tell them thank you? Because they have given you a great gift in simply living out a life of faithful confidence in the Lord. So why don't you this week sometime Write them a note, send them a text or an email, or even better, write them a handwritten note and just say to them, I want to thank you that you have provided for me a model of what it looks like to trust in the Lord. I hope you'll do that. For all of us, as I mentioned earlier, for all of us over the next two months, Joseph is going to be our shared model. We're going to be looking at Genesis 37 to 50. And we're going to learn how to trust in the Lord by watching Joseph trust in the Lord. By the way, the coolest thing happened this morning. I'm uh, always up really early on Sunday mornings. And when I got up today, uh, I looked at my email, which I always do. And in my inbox, there was an email from uh, the Biblical uh, Biblical Archaeology Review, which is a magazine uh, that I've been taking for years. And it gives, gives us great archaeological information about the Holy Land. Well, I received the, the actual magazine in the mail about uh, three or four days ago, but I had an email today highlighting an article in this magazine, which when it came in the mail, I dutifully placed in my bedside table and didn't even look at it. But I got up this morning and I had an email which seemed to say to me, pull the magazine out and look at it. And do you know what's in this uh, uh, fall's edition of BAR, Biblical Archaeology Magazine, is an eight-page article, big spread on does archaeology confirm Joseph's time in Egypt. Don't you love it when that happens? (laughs) It's just God is always right on time. It's a great article, by the way. I would highly recommend the magazine to you and the article. And the answer is yes, there is archaeological evidence, historical evidence, of the account of uh, the, uh, the Jewish people and Joseph being in, um, uh, being in Egypt. Now, last Sunday, I introduced Joseph to you. I said to you that Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham, and he was the son of Jacob. Let me show you in chapter 37, uh, verse 1 and verse 3, so you'll not be confused about this as we study through these chapters together. He is the son of Jacob, but Jacob has two names. Uh, His birth name is Jacob. His given name, that is the name that God gave him, is the name Israel. Look at verse 1. It says that Jacob dwelt in the land 
And then verse 3 says, now Israel loved Joseph. Jacob is one name. Israel is the other name. These are both the same person, okay? And uh, the name Jacob uh, was changed to Israel uh, when uh, Jacob wrestled with uh, God and God changed his name to Israel. So he's the great-grandson of Abraham. Joseph is the grandson of Isaac, and he is the son of Jacob. Now, we begin reading about uh, Jacob's or Joseph's experiences in chapter 37, but we first encounter Joseph in Genesis chapter 30. Why don't you turn back there quickly, just make a note of it. Uh, this is where we find Joseph for the first time in the biblical narrative, and it is at the day of his birth. In Genesis 30 and verse 22, the Bible says, And God remembered Rachel... Uh, and God hearkened unto her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bare a son and said, God hath taken away my reproach. And her reproach was, had been that she had been unable to conceive. In that culture, that was, that was uh, a great reproach upon a woman. And, uh, and, and so uh, she says, my reproach has been taken away. And she called his name Joseph. And the Lord said, uh, meaning uh, the Lord shall add to me another. Which, by the way, I love this faith. Rachel's unable to conceive for all of her married life to Jacob. The moment she conceives and has a son, she names him Joseph, which means God's going to give me another one. That's faith, right? She, she names one son, gives him the namesake of, you're not the last one. What God has done, he's going to do again. And she does have another son, by the way. Um, his name is Benjamin. But this text in chapter 30 records the birth of Joseph. Now, chapter 37 and verse 3 tells us that Joseph was loved, especially by his father Jacob, because he was the son of his old age. So, uh, Jacob and Rachel had been married for years. She had been unable to conceive. Later in life, God opens her womb and, uh, and uh, uh, Joseph is born. Now, uh, Jacob had 12 sons by four women. He had two wives, two concubines or lesser wives. So his, wife, his first wife was Leah. Uh, then he married her sister, Rachel. Rachel was his beloved. He's the one she fell in love with first. Some of you may know the story of Jacob working for his father-in-law, Laban, for seven years to marry uh, Rachel. But then Laban deceives him. He gets uh, Leah instead. Uh, so now he has two wives, both the daughters of Laban. Uh, they have, well, Leah has some children, uh, and then uh, there seems to be almost a battle that begins to happen to see who can give uh, Joseph the most children. And so uh, Leah and Rachel each have a maidservant named uh, Bilhah, and I forget, Zilpah, I think. And uh, they begin to conceive children with Joseph. Uh, it's an interesting story. We're going to talk about it some as we go through this. But the point is that Jacob has uh, 12 sons by four women. Rachel is his beloved wife, uh, and Joseph is his beloved son. And in our text in chapter number 37, Joseph is a teenager, and he is keeping uh, his father's flock with four of his half-brothers. Uh, those would be Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, four half-brothers who are with him 
out in the field. All right, with all that background, you ready to read the passage? You follow along. Genesis 37, verse number one. It says, Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. Now, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. That is, that he's reporting to his father on the evil being done by his half-brothers. Verse 3 says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. And so he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of the brethren, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it unto his brothers, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Hear, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. Now, you know what sheaves are, don't you? These are tall stalks of grain. We would think of like corn stalks. Uh, and they would gather them into, into bundles and tie them up in one big bundle and, and make a, a, a big bundle of sheaves. Well, he says, in my dream, we were binding these sheaves in a field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and stood upright. And behold, all of your sheaves stood round about me and made obeisance or bowed down in reverence or respect to my sheaf. Well, his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9 says, And he dreamed yet another dream. And he told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. And I'm sure they thought, Well, wonderful, let's hear it. He says, Here's the second dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars all bowed down to me. And then he told that dream to his father, Jacob, and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow down ourselves to the earth? And his brothers envied him. Underline this last statement, though, in verse 11. But his father observed the saying. His father took notice of the dream. Now, next week, we're going to talk about Jacob's family, learning to, or Joseph's family, learning to trust God with our families. And you can see just from this bit that we've read this morning that there's a lot going on in Joseph's family. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, there's polygamy. His dad's got four wives, two wives, two concubines with these 12 uh, boys uh, and a sister. Um, there, there's a lot of uh, envy and jealousy and sibling rivalry going on. There's some parental preference going on, jo Jacob loving Joseph more than the others. There's backbiting and hatefulness. and I mean, there's a lot going on in this family. And maybe you would say, I need to be here next week because I need that because there's a lot going on in my family as well. But we're we're going to learn to trust God with our families. But that's next week. Today we're not talking about family. Today we're talking about learning to trust God with our future. Learning to trust God with what is going to become of us 
as the days pass? What is going to happen? And God begins to real, uh, reveal Joseph's future to him in these two dreams uh, in Genesis chapter number 17. Now, the truth is, of course, that at the age of 17, uh, being the second youngest among 12 brothers total, um, living in obscurity, keeping sheep uh, out in, uh, in the land of Canaan, Joseph really had no way of conceiving of what his life was going to become. He, he could have never dreamed everything that God was going to do in his life. In fact, none of us can, do we? None of us know what the future is. We, we, we have no idea what tomorrow may hold. Now, we have ambitions and, and we have desires and we make our plans and, and, uh, and we even sometimes worry about what might happen in the future. But the truth is, regardless of how we plan and regardless of how we fret and worry, we don't know. We don't know what's going to come. Proverbs 27.1 says it this way, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring. It's true. So if I don't know what tomorrow holds... If, if I am uncertain about my future, and maybe the circumstances of my life today would be circumstances that would be foreboding and perhaps would, would cast a long shadow over a future that might not be very happy, then how can I trust God with that unknown? Well, the good news is while we don't know, God does know what our future is. Psalm 31 and verse 15 says, my future is in your hands. Keep me, protect me, rescue me from the hand of my enemies and those that would persecute me. Man, what a, what a psalm that Joseph could have prayed. My future is in your hands and rescue me from those who would persecute me. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about Joseph's life and God's future plans for Joseph as well as ours. Write this down if you will. What we learn from Joseph's life is that God not only knows our future, but God has planned our future. Somewhere in your notes, I hope you're going to write this down and, and take this home and know it, that God has planned what our future is going to be like. Uh, be like. God knew Joseph's future and he begins to reveal it to him in these dreams. Verse number seven, he has this dream and he describes the dream to his brothers. Now you might already, you, you might think that uh, Joseph would have kept this dream, you know, to himself, right? Because already his brothers don't like him very much. They know he's the favored boy. The scripture says they, they're jealous of him. They can't even speak nicely to him. And so if you dream that your brothers are going to bow down to you and they already hate you, just keep it to yourself, right? But do you know many 17-year-olds that can keep stuff to themselves? There aren't a lot. I couldn't when I was 17. And so he gets this dream, or he has this dream, and he just begins to speak it. Let me tell you about my dream that I've dreamed. Verse 7, Behold, we were all binding sheaves in the field. My sheep stood upright and your sheaves all gathered around and bowed down to me. And then verse 9, this second dream, which included not only his brothers, the 11 stars in, in the dream in verse 9, but also the sun, that represents his father, and the moon, his mother. Now there's no doubt about the interpretation. There's no missing the interpretation. They say, his brothers say in verse number 8, oh yeah, you think we're going to bow down to you? You think your sheaf is going to rise up and our sheaves are going to bow down? You really think you're going to reign over us? 
They know what the dream supposedly means, or at least what they know that Joseph thinks that it means. And even in verse number 10 and 11, when his father rebukes him and says, what are you doing talking like this? What do you mean saying that your mother and I and your 11 brothers are going to bow down to you? So there's no, there's no doubting the interpretation. It's, it's pretty clear that God is showing something that's going to come in Joseph's future. And while the text goes on to say that Joseph's brothers hate him all the more, verse number uh, 11 say that they envy him, they're jealous of him, uh, it says in verse number 11, and I asked you to underline it, that his father observed the saying. You know what Jacob knew? Jacob knew that sometimes God spoke through dreams. Jacob knew that God would use dreams to reveal things about the future. In fact, Jacob had had his own dream earlier. Can I take you to it? Go to chapter 28. Back to Genesis 28. Look at one verse. Verse number 12. It says in Genesis 28 and verse 12, Jacob dreamed... And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said to Jacob, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, and the land whereon you are lying, I will give it to you and to your generations, and your seed shall be as the dust of the earth. And what Jacob had dreamed was that God had said to him that in this land where he was sleeping on that night, where he had just come uh, to live in the land of Canaan, God showed him this ladder reaching from that land up to heaven. And the interpretation of the dream was that from this land and these people, Jacob's descendants, this would literally be the place and the way where God would make a way for us to ascend to heaven and he would come down. And he knew that now he's living, he has these 12 sons, and they're beginning to have their sons, and he's seeing the promise to Abraham come to pass. And so he knows that the dream he had is in fact coming true. And so when Joseph now is dreaming dreams, he takes note of it. Verse number 11 says he remembers or observes this saying because God does in fact speak this way. You know, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says this to us. It says that in, in, uh, in time past, in a lot of ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. So what the Bible says is that prior to the revelation of Jesus and the completion of the word, that God spoke through prophets and through uh, dreams and through visions. Does God still speak that way today? It's a good question, isn't it? Does, does God speak to us through dreams um, or other ways? Here's what I would say. God can speak to us through dreams if he wants to. Now, the truth is most dreams that I dream, can we agree, they're not from the Lord, okay? They're just kind of crazy mental flushy. But could God speak through dreams? Well, he could, but here's what you should know, that Hebrews 1.1 says he has decided in these last days to speak to us through his son, whom he has appointed to be heir of all things. Jesus is his son. God speaks to us through Jesus and through the word of Jesus. He speaks to us through the Bible. 
And so you might dream a dream in which God would impress something upon your heart, but you have what Joseph did not have. You have the word of God. Somebody say amen. And any dream that you have that you think might be an impression from the Lord will in fact not be new revelation. It will simply be a confirmation of what God has already said to you through his word. God speaks through his word, but he has in the past spoken through dreams. So we need to understand that Joseph, or Jacob rather, had some insight into this and he knew that God was revealing something that he had planned. So God plans our future. Second thing I want you to know is this, jot it down. It is that God works providentially to accomplish his plan. So when you think about your future, know this. God has planned it. He knows what's ahead of you. He knows what's ahead for your family. He knows what's ahead in the generations to come. He knows what will come next year, next, next uh, month, next decade. He's working in your life now to accomplish his will in your future. And I just have to say to you, from a guy who has the absolute ability to drive my life in the ditch, I am so grateful for a God who is working his plan in my life. And I want to learn to participate with him, and I want to learn to cooperate, but he's the one working his plan. I mean, you see this in Joseph's life right away. He has these dreams in chapter 37, verse 7, verse 9, these dreams that obviously point to a rise to great power, that Joseph is going to be this this great ruler and that people, including his family, are going to bow down to him. And immediately upon revealing that, God begins to orchestrate events to bring that to pass. It begins in the most... Simple of ways, the most uh, mundane of things that God would use to orchestrate these events. Chapter 37 and verse number 12. Jacob says to Joseph, I want you to go. Your brothers are at Shechem. They're, They're feeding the flocks in Shechem. And I want you to go there and check on them. Now, by the way, what a what a disconnect must be happening in Jacob's mind because he knows how these 11 brothers hate. Joseph so much. Maybe he's dismissing it. Maybe he's uh, like many fathers can tend to be just sort of clueless to what's really happening in the relationships within their family. Maybe he's not perceiving the true hatred that's there, but he says to Joseph, I want you to go off into a land far away, away from me, away from my influence, away from my protection. And I want you to check on your brothers. He should have known that would have been dangerous. But he does. He sends them to check on his brothers. That was a step in God unfolding his plan. Chapter 37, verse number 15, tells us that uh, Joseph can't find his brothers. And verse 15 says, A certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man said, What are you looking for? What an obscure, kind of nothing event. Joseph's walking in a field in Shechem, looking around for his brothers. And had he not found them, he would have turned around and gone right back to his father. And perhaps none of the rest of this life plan would have unfolded. But it just so happened that when he's wandering in a field, God sends a man. And he lets their paths cross. And this certain man, we don't even know his name, he just meets up with Joseph. He says, what are you looking for? And Joseph says, I'm looking for my brothers. He says, oh, I saw them. They've gone to Dothan. And he directs them. And God used that little thing to put Joseph where he needed to be in order for his plan to unfold. Verses 18 to 22, they're going to kill him. 
They're going to kill Joseph. His brothers have decided they're going to literally take his life. And if his life is taken at the age of 17, none of God's plan is going to unfold. And yet, God has Reuben intervene in verses 18, 19, 20, 21. Reuben intervenes and saves his life. He says, no, let's don't kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. I mean, it's not a good plan, but at least it saves his life. Don't give Reuben too much credit there. But he did save his life. And God uh, uh, kept him alive in that moment. God let it be that uh, some Midianites were coming by, and uh, they were able to now purchase Joseph uh, as a slave in chapter 37, verses 28 and 36, and they carried him down to Egypt. Do you see how that God has made a plan for Joseph's life? And he's just taking little events and moving the pawn pieces and putting things in place because God is doing what Joseph can't understand. He's putting him where he needs to be to accomplish his purpose. God plans our future, and then God works providentially to accomplish his plan. Uh, even uh, after he gets in Egypt, he ends up in Potiphar's house. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. And, uh, and he's very successful in Potiphar's house. And yet there is an accusation of rape, a false accusation, and Joseph ends up in prison, which couldn't be part of God's plan, right? I mean, why would God send his servant to prison? Until you find out that in prison it's where Joseph meets Pharaoh's butler and Pharaoh's baker who had always also been put in prison. And they just happen to be in the same ward in prison. And they then become the link that gets Joseph in front of Pharaoh, which ultimately is what helps Joseph or leads to Joseph ascending to the throne. Do you understand? It's the most mundane little life events that seem like nothing. But here's the great news. There is a God who is sovereign over all of life. And he's using these things to position us. The good things, the bad things, the difficult things, the, the pits and the potiphers, and the prisons of our lives. He's using those things to position us to fulfill the will that he has for us. Now, all along the way, Joseph was cluing into this. I'm I'm confident he was learning that it's true. But later, let me read to you from chapter number 45. You can turn if you'd like to. In fact, why don't you turn to chapter 45, look at verses 7 and 8 so you can mark it. This is 20 years later. This is when his brothers come to him and, and now he's revealing himself to them. And listen to what he says, chapter 45, verse 7. He says, God sent me. Would you say those words out loud with me, Sam? God sent me. One more time. God sent me. God sent me before you to preserve for you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me here, but it was God. And God made me a father to Pharaoh, and God made me the Lord of all Pharaoh's house, and God made me a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. When Joseph or Jacob sent Joseph to check on his brothers, and the stranger sent Joseph to find his brothers, and Reuben saved Joseph's life, and his brothers picked him out of a pit and sold him to some Ishmaelites, and the Ishmaelites' caravan just made their way down to Egypt, and the Egyptians bought him, and Pharaoh or Potiphar took him, and then he was accused and put in prison, and they, there he met the baker and the butler, and now he's. St- he says, In all of these things, it wasn't you, it was God that was orchestrating this. God has a plan for my future. And God works providentially to accomplish that plan. And all along the way, I want you to jot this down because it's the lesson for us that that, uh, Joseph models. It is that Joseph learned to trust God in that process. Joseph learned that along the way, 
he could trust the Lord. I wonder how many times, and I, I have to imagine there were many, when Joseph might have you know, cried out, Lord, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why am I in this pit? Why am I being carried in this caravan to be sold? I just came down here to check on my brothers. God, why am I sitting in prison? How many times he must have cried out, why me? But it was in those deep valleys, church. Listen, it was in, it was in those dark days and those uncertainties that Joseph learned to trust in God. He learned that in these moments, I can trust in the Lord. And what was it? What was it about God's activity in his life that taught him to trust? Because we don't learn to trust just because we're in a valley. We learn to trust. Listen, if y'all are listening, say amen. amen. We don't learn to trust just because we're in a valley. We learn to trust because of God's activity in that valley or what God is doing in us in that valley. So what was it that God was doing that taught Joseph to trust him. Write it down. Number one, it is that he discovered that in the valley, God's presence was his comfort, that God was near. You know, through all of the uncertainties that Joseph endured, all of those days when he didn't know what was happening or why it was happening, he was certain of this, that God was being faithful to him. Last week, I read to you from Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, which talked about these valleys. And Stephen says that God was with Joseph and that he delivered him. Well, Stephen and the Israelites had that historical perspective, that 2020 hindsight. They could look back and say, yeah, God was at work and did elevate him. But Joseph couldn't see that when he was in the pit or when he was in the prison. And yet he knew it because the text tells us in Genesis 39, verses 2, and verse number 21, that the Lord was with Joseph. He knew this. And you know why he knew it? Because he had good models too. Because God had been with his father Jacob. And the text tells us in, in uh, Genesis 28 and verse 15 where God spoke to Jacob and he said to Jacob, don't be afraid, I'm with you. And he knew that God had been present with Isaac his grandfather, because the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that God said to Isaac in Genesis 26, 24, I am with you. Here's the point. That when we're going through valleys or we're, we're, we're in places that, that are difficult or uncomfortable or hard or, or they're, they're trials or troublesome, I can endure anything if I know that my God is with me, if he's present in the pit, if he's present with me in the prison, then I can trust that he has not forgotten me and that he is at work. In fact, Isaiah 41 and verse 10 says it so beautifully, fear thou not, for I am with thee, God says. Do not be dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. If I can know that, do you hear this, Pastor, this morning? If I can know that, that he is with me, then I can know he hasn't forgotten me and he's at work in my life. The second thing that prompted Joseph to trust the Lord is that he knew that God's promises were unchanging, that God's presence was, was a comfort to him, but he also knew that God 
had forgot him. And so in the, in the pit, when his brothers threw him in the pit, or when he was in Potiphar's house, or when he was in the prison, no matter where he was, here's what he knew. God made me a promise, and he will not forget his promise. By the way, God's made some promises to us as well. Amen? And can I tell you, no matter what's going on in your life, God hadn't forgot his promises to you. And by the way, do you know that Joseph experienced these difficulties in a time of national crisis? When Egypt endured seven years of famine, not only in Egypt, but in the regions around, and people were literally starving to death, the nation was crippled by the famine. And in a time of national crisis, the promise of God stood sure. Listen, I know. I know some of us are, are, are fretting and we're worried about our nation and our land and it, and it seems like there's, there's so many things that are hardships and difficulties and oppressions and, and, and we wonder, God, have you forgotten all about us? Listen to me. If y'all listen, shout amen. God has not forgotten his promises and no matter what happens in the White House or the State House, the promises of God remain sure to his people. And I can trust him. So whether it's, it's a national crisis or it's my own personal crisis, whether it's a, an economic crisis or it's a family crisis, here's what I know, that God is with me, his promises stand sure, and I can rest in him. I can trust in him. Well, one last thing I want to tell you about Joseph and his trusting in God's plan. And it is simply to say that God's plan for Joseph's future and God's plan for our future goes beyond death. I've got good news for you this morning. God has a plan for you, not just in this life, but beyond. Praise God for that. In fact, I want to take you over to the end, and I'm going to take a risk here because the end, chapter 50 of Genesis, is my text in eight weeks. But you'll forget it by then, okay? So... I'm going to give you a little, uh, little uh, wet your appetite a bit. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 50. Look at verse number 24. Joseph says unto his brothers, I'm dying. But God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land of Egypt unto the land which he swore unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, the land of Canaan. And Joseph made his brothers promise. He took an oath of the children of Israel, saying... God will surely visit you, and when he does, you shall carry my bones out of here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the end of Genesis, and the next book in the Bible is the book of Exodus, which records God's visiting the children of Israel and taking them out of Egypt. And we won't take the time, but if you go to Exodus chapter 13, Exodus 13, go read it later, when Moses the deliverer has come and he's leading the children of Israel, that great Exodus coming out of Egypt uh, to the land of promise. Do you know what Exodus 13 says? Man, I'm about to shout telling you this. <laughs> Exodus 13 says that Moses, not Aaron, not any other, Moses took the bones of Joseph 
And Moses, the deliverer, marched out of Egypt carrying the bones of Joseph to be buried in the land of Canaan. Here's what I want you to know that Joseph knew. For him, his last stop was not a grave in Egypt. And I want you to hear me this morning. God has such a plan for your life. He doesn't want your last stop to be the grave. He wants you to be carried home to heaven. And he has made arrangements through his son Jesus, his death and resurrection, so that you could say, God in his grace will one day surely come. And when he comes, I will be carried out of here when that great trumpet sounds on resurrection morning. I will go not from Egypt to Canaan, but from earth to heaven on that day because I can trust in the God who has every day of my life and every moment of my eternity in his plan. It didn't seem like it all through his life. He couldn't always see what God was doing, but he learned to trust in God. In 1971, Andre Crouch wrote a song. Some of you know what it was. He used to sing it at the Billy Graham Crusades all over the world. It's called Through It All. And he says, I wrote the lyrics down because I'm going to sing it to you. <laughs> I'm not really. He said, <laughs> preach it, don't sing it. Andre Crouch said, I've, I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There's been times I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation... God gave me blessed consolation that my trials only come to make me strong. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all. Have you learned? Have you learned to trust him?